Father, I am so thankful for your unspeakable gift. Overwhelmed. Words are inadequate. But thanks we give. The next 30 minutes here, I am asking that you would that you would just help the truth, the central truth of the Christmas story. Help me to speak that clearly, to articulate it accurately. Ask for the fullness of your Holy Spirit to send that truth into the hearts and into the minds that are here. I can't do that, but you sure can. And that truth has the power, the truth of the gospel of the good news about Jesus has the power to bring life when there is death. Sight where there is blindness. Healing where there is brokenness. Faith where there's doubt. Peace where there's turmoil. Joy where there's sorrow. Would you just keep me out of the way? Send forth your truth. Exalt Jesus Christ. As we take a few minutes here to talk about the Christmas story. It's in the name of that child who came to the manger, we pray. Amen. The first Christmas message that was ever preached was not preached to kings and to potentates, not to the rich and the powerful. It was preached to some shepherds out on a lonely hillside that were keeping their evening vigil watching over their sheep. And into that dark night, quiet, still night, the angel, a messenger from heaven, suddenly appeared to the shepherds. Scripture tells us. And he shattered the darkness and dispelled the silence and brought a message. Preached the first message on the first Christmas to those shepherds. And here is what he preached, Luke chapter 2, 10 and 12. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy 
that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. That was the message. How did the shepherds respond to that message? Just look down three verses to the 15th verse of chapter 2. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I want us to take a cue from the shepherds this morning. I want us to follow their lead. I want us to ask ourselves and say to ourselves what the shepherds said. Let us. Let us go. Let us turn aside and go and see this thing that the Lord has made known to us. So we're going to do that this morning. And what I want us to do as we begin is I want us to go in the same heart, in the same way that the shepherds went. And I'll just give you a word here, anticipation. I believe the shepherds went with great anticipation in twofold way. Obviously, middle of the night, angelic being shows up, shatters the silence, dispels the darkness. Glory of God all around brings a message of great joy. There would be some anticipation to go and see the thing that the angel had talked about. But there was another aspect of their anticipation that I want to highlight for you. And it wasn't just theirs. It was a national anticipation. Even beyond that, it was the anticipation of the Jews, but it was an anticipation that began all the way back in the garden. All the way back at the moment when Adam and Eve in the garden with that perfect relationship with the Father, when they broke the direct command of God, ate from the tree, committed the sin, and brought separation between themselves and God. That was the darkest moment of history to that point. And right in that moment of darkness, God himself, Genesis chapter 3, preached the first note of the gospel, the first note of the good news. He said that a Savior was going to come. He said a seed of the woman is going to come, a child that's going to become a man, and that man is going to crush 
the serpent's head. He's going to defeat the tempter. First note of the gospel. And Adam and Eve and their children down through the generations begin to wonder, when is he coming? When is he coming? Then history continued to unfold. We read in the Old Testament, God came to Abraham, 12th chapter of Genesis, and he said to Abraham, Abraham, I am going to make you into a great nation. Kings are going to come from you, and from your line is going to come one who's going to be a blessing to the entire world. So the promise there, continuation of the promise from Genesis 3 that the Savior was going to come through the lineage of Abraham. Later, Moses, the great lawgiver, the one through whom God gave the Ten Commandments there on the mountain of fire and smoke, Moses said, a greater lawgiver than me is going to come after me, pointing to the Savior, the promise. And history continued to unfold. The author of the Psalms wrote about the Savior that was to come, saying that He's going to be a great King whose name would endure forever. He said that the nations would be His inheritance and the ends of the earth His possession. Later, the prophets declared that this one who was going to come would be the desire of the nations. That his name would be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And as history unfolded, the promises concerning this Savior became more and more specific. Like he would be from the tribe of Judah. He would come from the lineage, the line of David. He would be born in a town called Bethlehem. It was told through the prophets that before the coming of the Savior, the Messiah, a great prophet was going to precede him. And this prophet was going to preach a message of repentance. And that message was going to prepare the hearts of the people so that when the Savior came, they were ready. I mean, down through history, message after message, truth after truth about this Savior that was to come. You see, it says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, this is the Apostle Paul who wrote these words. He said, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
What I want us to do this morning, we cannot literally walk beside the shepherds to go and see this thing of which they had been and through the word of God we have been told. But what we can do through the pen of Paul, even through these very two verses right here in Galatians 4 and 5, we can turn aside for the next 20 25 minutes, and we can look at the child in the manger and see what Paul said right here and consider and ponder the reality of what took place on that first Christmas. So let us go and see together. What I want to do through those two verses is I want to show you three key truths about the Christmas story. And we're going to come at them in the form of three questions that these two verses here answer. Here are the questions. When was Christmas? What was Christmas? And why was Christmas? Those three questions are what Paul answers in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. First of all, when was Christmas? What does Paul say? When the fullness of time had come. Christmas was in the fullness of time, in the fullness of God's time. That phrase means that the story of Christmas was a planned out event, divinely planned. That it was the culmination of the orchestration, the divine orchestration of a number of events that were leading up to the great chief moment of history. To when the fullness of time would come and God would do something so radical when the fullness of time was here. Let me just reason, consider with you What that might mean, the fullness of time. What was included in that? Let me just give you four or five truths that I am 100% convinced are a part of that statement. One of them, I've already mentioned several aspects of it. The fullness of time, first of all, had to do with the completion of the prophecies that were given concerning the Savior that was to come. You see, down through the Old Testament. I only gave you about seven or eight prophecies, but there were some 340 prophecies, very specific prophecies that were made about the Savior that was to come. When all of those had been made and they were written down, identified, put into print, preserved so that we could look at them and study them. It was only after all of them had been given that the fullness of time came and how, how important they become because what we can do now on this side of the equation is that we can look back what no one saw until after the fact that Jesus had come and lived and died and rose again that, oh, Jesus fulfilled 
every single prophecy validating the fact that he is the Savior, proving beyond question that he is just who he said that he was. Here's another aspect to the fullness of time that the Jews were fully prepared. The Jewish nation through which Christ would come. You see, they had all those prophecies and they had them written down and they studied them. And then they also had the law of God and the law of God taught them about the oneness of God and the holiness of God. And in addition to the law of God, they had the sacrificial system of the temple, the tabernacle. The means by which we as sinners approach a holy God. All of that pointing the way ultimately to a sacrifice that was to come. Because those sacrifices, scripture was clear, never truly removed sin. They were just foregleams. They were just pictures of the great sacrifice that was to come. So all of these events helped to prepare the Jewish nation, the prophecies, the law, the sacrificial system to help prepare them for the fullness of time when the Savior would come. But not only were the Gentiles prepared, or the Jews prepared, the Gentiles, the non-Jews were prepared. How were they prepared? Well, the world into which Jesus was born, the Gentile world into which Jesus was born was a pagan world steeped in the depths of sin's depravity. It was a poisoned world without hope. It was a dark, dark world. And Scripture says that Jesus came to be the light for the Gentiles. It is the very darkness of the pagan world that set the stage for the light of the world, Jesus Christ, to come. You know, even the wisest and the most honored and the brightest of pagan thinkers, men like Plato and Socrates, they themselves said that what we need is a revelation because we cannot find God ourselves. Let me just quote a statement from Plato. He said that man must take his own reason and use it as a raft on which to pass through the stormy seas until a revelation shall come. In other words, we're hopeless trying to get to God, trying to figure out God. What we need is a revelation of truth from something greater than us. See, the Gentile world in their desperate situation, in their realization of hopelessness was ready. The fullness of time had come. Here's another aspect. It has to do with Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, through his almost worldwide conquests, through those conquests, had given the world, guess what? 
almost a universal language, the Greek language, used throughout the populated world of that day. It was in the Greek language that the New Testament was written. And that language is an incredibly specific language. There is something very profound about this, so different than our English language. The the specificity of the Greek language, I believe, our word the, they have 24 words. 24 ways to write that. You see, in the Greek language, because of the declension of nouns and verbs, you can take uh, the wording in a Greek sentence and you could mix all of the words up and just kind of put them in a bag and drop them on the table. And because of the ending of the words, you can say, okay, there's the subject, there's the direct object. You could restructure the syntax of the sentence because of the specificity of how the language is written. A precise language so that the truth could be precisely communicated and passed down to subsequent generations when the fullness of time had come. Let me give you another aspect. has to do with the next world power, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, the ruling power of Jesus' day, they had... defeated all foes that had risen up against them. And so pervasively had they done that, that during a long period of time, there was peace over the known world. You probably studied that in history. It's called Pax Romania, the peace of Rome. Over a 200-year period, There was peace in the world because Rome, through its military might and then its governmental system that it put in place to govern the world, held the world in its peace for about 209 years. And then Rome did something else all over the world. Do you know what they built all over the world? They built roads. They built roads. So that travel from place to place was feasible. Now, think about those issues right there and then apply that to Jesus' statement to his disciples who said, I want you to go into all the world and take the message of my good news to all peoples everywhere. Guess what they could do? They could go into all the world because there was roads and they could speak to people because there was a common language and they could go safely from place to place country to country, because over all of it was a governmental structure that was really unified under one head, Roman power, that opened up the world to them so that when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son. You see, Christmas was at the right time. 
What I want you to understand from that is that God looked at this event that happened in that little sleepy town of Bethlehem as the chief event of history to that moment. And he orchestrated the details of history down through hundreds and thousands of years, causing nations to rise and fall, cultures to develop, technologies to advance, all for the purpose of setting the stage so that in the right moment, the precise moment when everything was ready, that he would send the promised seed of woman. So that when he had prepared in his sovereign control everything as it needed to be, the fullness of time came. And God sent his son. One more thought about that. Having worked and planned and orchestrated for thousands of years to bring everything to that one moment. Who did he proclaim it to? He went to a few shepherds on a lonely hillside outside of Bethlehem, not to king's palaces, not to the influential and the famous. He went to a few shepherds watching over some sheep on a hillside and said, I got good news of great joy for all people. And I'm telling you first. Oh, there's a message in there for you. There's a message in there for all of us. God cares about the least and the lowest. He wants you to know the message He doesn't want it separated and for a privileged few. He wants it for everyone. So when was Christmas? It was in the fullness of time when God had finished his historical orchestration, setting the stage for that chief moment of history. Let's ask the second question, see if we can find the answer in Paul's statement in Galatians 4, what was Christmas? That's, an, that's a question about the essence of. I mean, really, what was it? <clears throat> the Christmas story, and I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the materialistic secular story, you know, the Santa story that's a falsehood, but I'm talking about the biblical narrative about Jesus, there are a lot of details in that story, a lot of incredible details. But if you take away all of the secondary aspects of the story and bring it down to one central truth, what is the one truth of the Christmas story, the one great truth? Let me say it this another way. What is the one truth of Christmas that if you took it out of the Christmas story, that all of it would be worthless? What is the one truth upon which all of the Christmas story is built? Paul said, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. 
the truth is included right in there. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law. The great story of Christmas is that the God of glory, the eternal God, the sovereign God of all power and all wisdom and all knowledge, that that God left heaven and entered into the flesh of the human reality. The incarnation is the what of Christmas. It is the God-man. That's the what of Christmas. You take that out of Christmas, you destroy the entire message. None of the other miracles of the story mean anything if you get rid of that one miracle. You see... What we were told there, what we're told in Matthew and in Luke about the incarnation, about this miracle. Let me just read it for you. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. The angel says to Joseph, Behold, the virgin shall conceive. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The virgin shall conceive, conceive by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary that there would be a child born to a human mother conceived by the Holy Spirit of God so that that child would be called what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's the what of Christmas. God became a man. That's the what of Christmas. It's the most shocking reality up to history to that point. It's so beyond anything that man would have dreamed up. God, the sovereign king of eternity, became a vulnerable child born to a teenage girl who couldn't feed himself, who couldn't change his own diaper. That was God. That's the what of Christmas. And if you take away the virgin birth, then you destroy all of the other truths of Christmas. The virgin birth is the constituent miracle that makes all the other miracles of Christianity possible. No virgin birth then the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ means absolutely nothing to you. Can do nothing to save you. This is the constituent miracle that set the stage for the truth of Christianity to become a reality. That's the what of Christmas. You see, it's not the story of God appearing to man. And it's not the story of a man living a great life and ascending up into Godhead status. No. It's the story of God, the eternal God, coming down, marrying his divine nature with a human nature so that that child that was born was actually God with us in human flesh. 100% God, 100% man. 
so that we have a God who has lived our reality. We have a God that we can see in the person of Christ, hear in the person of Christ, touch and know personally in the person of Jesus Christ. We have a God who knows what it's like to get sleepy and to have pain and to have heartache and to suffer and to have sorrow. We have that God who walked the same path that we Walk. We have a God who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. That's the what of Christmas. We have a God-man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what was accomplished through the virgin birth. That is the truth that gave cause for the New Testament to be written. If the virgin birth would not have happened, we would not have one word of this right here. Not one word. Now let's go to the why of Christmas. We've answered the when and the what. The why question is a purpose question. Why did God do that? Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Why did the God of all eternity fully enter human reality? It's so that he could redeem mankind. So that he could buy us out of our sinful, hopeless state. So that he could enter into the marketplace of the world in which we were slaves. And come and pay the redemption price to buy us out of slavery and set us free. That's what redemption means. You see, the angel said to Joseph, Joseph, I want you to name the child Jesus because he's going to do what? He's going to save his people from their sins. The angel told the shepherds that unto them was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. John said that Jesus came to bring light and life Paul said, Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus himself, the child that was born to that teenage girl and placed in that manger, when he grew up, here's what he said about why he came. I came to seek and to save the lost. You see, the Christmas story is about a Savior. It is about a Savior. And because it's about a Savior coming, the Christmas story is more than the birth. You cannot stop at the manger and understand the Christmas story. Because if you stop at the manger, the story is meaningless. I'm going to say that even stronger. If you stop at the manger and just pause once a year 
to turn aside to the nativity scene and say, oh, isn't that precious? The child in the manger. And then wait for another 364 days to come back and peek again. Then the story is meaningless to you. It is useless. In fact, it doesn't make any sense. Think about it. The God of heaven, the God of eternity, the God of glory, the God of power, the God of purpose in everything he does to leave heaven, come down and become vulnerable, become a child depending upon a teenage girl to sustain him, to just come so that we could have a neat holiday to stop once a year and feel good about Would that make any sense at all? No, the only reason that Christmas makes sense is if you set beside the manger, the cross, and the tomb. Because he came to save. That was the promise in Genesis chapter 3. And that was the promise down through the Old Testament. And that's what the angel said to Joseph and the angel said to the shepherds. That's what Jesus Christ himself said. It's all about a savior and the birth doesn't save, the death saves. Jesus came to the manger so that he could go to the cross. When he left heaven, the cross was in his view. It was his purpose from all eternity. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the earth. That means that the plan was already in place before God ever said, let there be light. The only thing that makes sense of the manger is the cross. The only thing that completes the manger is the cross and the empty tomb. So don't stop at the manger. Understand that that baby that you are turning aside to look at is actually the sovereign king and ruler of the universe who has been ruling throughout all eternity, who has sustained every one of the breaths that you have drawn for your entire life, who has enabled your heart to beat every time that is beat and will beat for the rest of your life. It's all because of the child in the manger. John said that in his gospel that Jesus Christ was the word who was God who was the one that was the power through which all things were created he was the one that sustains life he was the the one that is the purpose for which all things exist that child in the manger that's who that is And so what the Christmas story is intended to accomplish is that you would do what the shepherds did, that you would turn aside and you would realize, you would contemplate the message that was given to them that this is the Savior of the world. This is God in the flesh and that you would bow down to worship Him. That you would live your life for the one who left heaven and came and died for you and your sin and then rose again and defeated sin and death and hell. That you would come to Him and surrender your life to Him and say, my life is not my own anymore. I give it, Jesus, to you. I repent of my 
my sin. I turn myself over to you. I believe in who you are and what you've done. Now I'm asking you to give me a new life and the power to live it. That's the goal of the Christmas story. That's the goal of the Christmas story. It's not to give you warm feelings a few days a year. It's to change every day of your life and all of your eternity. You know, when Jesus came, so many rejected him. He came to those who were his own, John wrote, but his own received him not. But the very next statement of John in John chapter 1 is this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John said right there that if you believe in the person of Jesus Christ, that you really believe that he is God in the flesh that left heaven to come and die for your sin and that he did that, he died for your sin, not his own, he didn't have any, but for your sin and that three days later he rose again from the grave just like he said that he would. That if you believe in who he is and what he's done and in repentance you come to him broken over your sin but in full belief in who he is and what he's done and you ask him to save you he will become your savior who will do just what the angel said to Joseph. He will save you from your sin. That's why Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, that he came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He came to redeem us who were under the law, under the law of God, which judges sin righteously, all of us sinners. We had to be redeemed from under the law because the law rightly judged us. And so the way that Jesus redeemed us is he paid the redemption price and the redemption price was his own spilled blood, his own death because sin demands that the death penalty be paid so that in Jesus Christ, if we accept him, put our faith only in him and what he's done, then what happens is that God gives us the righteousness of Jesus. I think it was Megan in the video that we saw said that God is pleased with us because God is pleased with his son. 
And if you put your faith in Jesus, you are placed into Jesus Christ so that the Father looks at you and he sees the righteousness of his Son. It is the only way to be saved. He is the only Savior of the world. It is only Jesus who came to be the Savior of the world. You cannot get to God any other way. Every other path leads to your condemnation and eternal judgment. But Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the path to eternal life, to forgiveness, to joy, to peace, not just in the hereafter, but he'll do just what the testimony that we heard about before I begin to preach, that he'll be the God who not for a moment will he leave you. He'll be the God that walks every step of the way with you and helps you through every valley and he understands them because he walked them. Would you please stand? I want to just close us in a word of prayer here. I want to give you the opportunity You could have done that already while I've been preaching the good news, the truth of Jesus Christ. I hope I've made that clear to you. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus is what saves. You can accept Christ today as your Savior if you recognize that you're a sinner and that the only way you can be saved is through Jesus. And you believe in who Jesus is, God in the flesh, and what he did He lived a perfect life and then took your sin on himself and paid its penalty on the cross and three days later did just what he said he would do, came back from the dead. You believe that, you put your faith in Christ, you call out to him and he will save you. He'll give you a brand new existence and the Christmas miracle will be yours. You'll never see Christmas in the same way. A child in the manger will become the sovereign God of the universe. Let's pray. Father, oh God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Words are so inadequate. Hear the cry of our hearts, the cries of thanksgiving. And Lord, I'm asking you, those that are in here that have not yet surrendered their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would open up their eyes to see, their minds to understand, their hearts to believe. Draw them to your Son. And in response to their surrender to Him, 
justify them, redeem them. Make them your sons and your daughters. you, God. In the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.